this, this month we're continuing our series on the Psalms, and we're focusing this month on those Psalms which speak most explicitly about our Lord Jesus Christ and tell of him as he was, as they looked to him a thousand years before he came to contemplate him. And so uh, we'll uh, look today at Psalm 89. We've already read part of it. We'll be focusing on verses 19 through 37. So let's give attention to God's holy inspired word, and we will see how God will speak to us today through his word. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get, back, get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock, my savior. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him shall never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Let's, let's pray. O Lord, our great and glorious God, we thank you, O Lord, that you have spoken to us of the relationship that you have with this world And you've spoken to us of your covenant and of your grace. And we pray, O Lord, that we would be able to hear. Pray that you would speak to each person who is here, that they would consider these words and that they would see what you are doing in the world, that they might be encouraged, they might turn unto their king, and that they might find life and hope in him. And so, Lord, we pray that in all things Christ might be exalted. And, O Lord, we know we need your spirit to enable us to do this. We ask your blessing upon us towards that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So our general concern in life is so often, are things going to really turn out well? Whether we think of our nation, say our nation going to experience good things, is our world going to experience good things, our family, us as individual, and things, we find times that are tough, then we start to worry all the more that, you know, are things really going to be good for us? But you know, we also do experience some pretty good times, most of us, one time or another in our life. And you know what happens though, as soon as we ex- things start going well, we start asking, well, when's the other shoe going to drop? In other words, what is going to happen? Is this thing going to last? Things are going well. I don't know if it'll go. keep going well. And so even if things are going well, we have anxiety of whether things will continue to go well. And this text that we have before us actually answers that question of whether or not we can expect good things and whether or not those good things will last. So that's what we're going to see. Now, this passage speaks of the idea of a covenant with, that God makes with his people, and particularly through David. So the first thing I want you to see is what this covenant is, and what a covenant is, rather. And then 
you'll see that there's two groups of people mentioned here. There's David and then his sons. And I want us, in order to understand what that covenant is, we need to understand who David is, and then we need to understand his sons. So those will be the three things we'll look at, the covenant, and then David, and then his sons. So when, when the Bible speaks of a covenant, the question is, what is it, what are we talking about? Well, a covenant comes about when we, make, when we obligate ourselves to do something that we didn't have to do before, or when we reaffirm ob- obligations that we had before, and now we want to continue in that. So, for example, if you're single today and you're not married, uh, there's, there's no, the, no one in this room can say, you are my husband or you are my wife. No matter how much they want that, they can't say that and they can't make it happen. Why? Because you've got to agree to that together. You say, you, in the marriage, you make a commitment that didn't exist before, where you say, I will commit to this woman, and this woman says, I'll commit to this man, that we'll be together, that we'll help each other, that we'll, and we'll do it until death, until death uh, divides us. And so that's something that, you know, is a new commitment that is made. You can also see it in the world of, of business. Sometimes people will come together and they have a business on their own, but sometimes they find someone else that they want to work with or they want to pull their resources. So what they'll do is they'll commit themselves to certain obligations, that they're going to contribute this amount of money, that this will then belong to the company, and that whatever amount they make will go to certain people, and then other things are involved as well. So that's what we're talking about as a covenant. Now, there's some, some obligations that we have that, are not, that we don't make up, that these are things that are just part of us, and we are uh, obligated to do them, whether we like to or not, whether we want to or not. So, for example, you'll see in the Bible, the Bible doesn't call the relationship of the parent and the child a covenant. Why? Because the parent and the child are naturally obligated to each other. The child to honor the father and mother, and the parents to take care of their children. That's a natural obligation. They don't call, when we say that we're called to love each other, love our neighbor as ourselves, That's something we're required to do whether we want to or not because God has made us to live in community so we need to learn to love each other. To give praise to God and give honor and adoration, that's not not necessarily part of the covenant because that's something we're naturally obligated to do. So that's what we're talking. That's the distinction. Natural obligations versus assumed obligations. So when we say assumed obligations, and what, what we find is that God himself obligates himself to do certain things that he didn't have to do. So, for example, when God destroyed the world with a flood because of man's sin, God took on an obligation to himself afterwards that he would never destroy the world again with a flood. And he gave the rainbow as the sign of that covenant. He did not have to say that. He could have, said, he could have done, done it again if he wanted to. But he decided he wouldn't, so he committed to not destroy the world again, and that's called his covenant. And now he won't, because God cannot lie. We can also see this in the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham was a man who was a sinful man, just like any one of us. And God had no obligation to select him and say, I'm going to bless you. But God chose to do that, and he chose to make a commitment to him 
that he would bless him and that he would multiply his descendants and bless the whole earth through it and give him the land of Canaan and eventually the whole world. And that was God's covenant. And so we find here that God talks about a covenant he made with David. It says in verses 3 and 4, that God said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Now, did God have to choose David to be the king? No, he had no obligation to do so, but he chose to do so. He he certainly didn't have to say to David, one of your sons will reign forever, but he said, but he chose to do that. Once he had chosen to do that, then he had to do that because it was his covenant and because God, unlike us, is faithful to his covenant. We know he will do that. So that's what we're talking about. And this covenant that God makes with David is basically that out of one of your descendants, that all, the whole world, you're going to have a king of the world. And this king will bring in righteousness and goodness and blessing and he'll, he'll uh, be victorious and so on. So let's look at that more closely. Um. So we move to the second point then. See what God says about David. We're moving to verse 19 through 29. And you see that this, this text describes this covenant as God saying five things to David. Now, if you if you're, uh, have the bulletin there, I always put a little outline in there. So if you want to follow this along, if it gets a little confusing, feel free to grab that little outline, and you'll see we're at the second point, David, and I have those five things, and you can fill in the blanks if you want to. So there's, there's five things that God says to David. First, he says, God will anoint him with oil. Look at verse 20. I have found David my servant with my sacred oil. I have anointed him. So in the Old Testament, and, and, and then when God set aside a king or a priest or a prophet, he would have someone put oil on their head as a representation that they were being set aside to do a particular work. But that meant more than just getting oil on their head. It also meant that they would get power and strength to do what they were called to do. Look at verse 21. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. And so you see that God is going to not only call him to that, but he's going to give him help and give him strength to do what he's called us to do which is, of course, what God always does. When he calls us to do something, he doesn't just send us out there with resources. He says he'll be with us. Secondly, God will give him victory. Verses 22 and 23. It says, The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. So there it says that this king will have enemies, but they will not be victorious. This king, David, will defeat them. Third, God will give him the world as his to rule over. Verse 25, I will set his right hand over the sea, his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. So showing he's going to the furthest boundaries. In verse 27, I will appoint him to be my firstborn. That is the one who has the right to rule. And he said he will be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So he'll be above all the other kings. So he's going to reign not just in one small place, but his rule will extend. Fourth, God will make him reign forever. He has, when he's king, he's not just king for a short time. He doesn't just have a four-year term as king. It's a kingship that will last forever. 
He says in verse 28, I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. But then, fifth, God will have a special relationship with him. And so in verse 26, it says, He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. So this idea is that he's going to have in a special way call him, you are my father. Now, of course, in some sense, we can all say what he says here. But it's clear that there's a unique sense. He's the firstborn. He's the one who calls him on his father in a unique way. And one of the, in what we saw in Psalm 45 last week is that when they are speaking of this king, they says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Recognizing this, that this descendant, this future king that they sing about in the Psalms, is going to be not only a man, but also God. And so have a unique relationship with God because he is the eternally begotten son of, of God. And so that's what we're talking about here. Now, there's a question that arises in this text, and that is, who is this David that the psalmist is speaking of? And this gets, and, and the reason why is because these words were given in a vision. Verse 19 says, once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, and so on. <clears throat> and this vision refers back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, which we're going to look at for just a minute, because this is the context of this passage, and actually all the psalms that are similar that speak of this glorious king. So Second Samuel chapter 7. What happened is David became successful as a king, He conquered Jerusalem. He built a house for himself. And then he said, I don't want God to dwell in a tent. I want him to dwell in a house like me. So I'll build a house for him. And the prophet Nathan said to him, that's a good idea. You should do that. But then God spoke to Nathan and said, no, not yet. And here's what he said. Verse 12, or beginning of verse 11, here's what the prophet Nathan said to him. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is God speaking to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now hopefully you hear the words of Psalm 89 and what we just read in Second Samuel 7. So one thing, if you want to just... Delve into this a little bit more. Just spend a little bit more time reading that because it's a lot to take in. So, but I'm going to tell you that there's an interesting fact about Second Samuel seven and Psalm eighty nine, and that is in in Second Samuel seven, God applies all these great promises to David's son, not to David, but to David's son. But here in this passage. All these great promises are applied to David and not to his son. So the question is, what's going on? Well, I think the way we are to understand it is that this passage is like many of the others we read in the Psalms, 
that is talking about this future king. And because he's a descendant of David, he is called David, even though it's not the literal historical David. Now understand, I believe there was a literal historical David. But I'm saying that that's not what this passage is primarily talking about. The David here is Christ himself, the great future king that was called David's son in 2 Samuel. But why is he called David? Because he's, a, he's the greater David. He's the descendant of David. Now, this is common actually in Scripture. When, 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 they, when the prophets look and think about the future king that is coming, he says... For example, in Jeremiah, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And similarly in Ezekiel, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. So there, David is, is the Christ, the one that is going to reign over all the world. That's the promised king that this passage is looking for. And yet he's called David. So we see these things here, then we see that we are talking about Christ. And so, what's the payoff? Well, who could this person be but the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Jesus has fulfilled these promises. He is the son of David, and he has exalted as king. It's a strange claim that we make as Christians, but we believe that, that in spite of all that we see in the world, in spite of what we might see with our eyes, we believe with faith, but, but based on good reason, that Jesus is actually the exalted king of this world. He's actually reigning right now. We believe that he came, and when he came, he said he was going to die, but he said that he would rise again from the dead. And then he did it. He rose from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven, and he sent the Spirit to show that he was, sent, he was ascended in heaven. So what that means is that Jesus is reigning right now. Now, what reason will we have to believe that Jesus is reigning right now? Because in many ways, you see, there's a lot of things messed up about the world. But what we do see is that that all over the world, human beings of all types are saying, Jesus is my king. Black and white and all different colors, they're all saying, Jesus is the king. Everywhere, all over nations, all different backgrounds, poor and rich, all different levels of education, no education, doctorate, master's degree, bachelor's degree, high school, all of them are saying Jesus is the king. All over the world, people are claiming that Jesus is the king. All kinds of different people. And what is the explanation for that? It's not because... Because if you claim the name of Jesus, you necessarily get rich or get powerful in this world because often the people who do that are the most despised and experience the worst sort of thing. The only explanation is that Jesus is actually reigning. But he reigns gradually by winning the hearts and minds of people and then by using them in the world to make a difference. We've seen this even in this last week. Why is it that that, uh, um, Roe versus Wade was overturned in our nation? The The reason... In, 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 in great, great part, is because people who said, we believe Jesus is king, were, were, prayed about it, asked the Lord to overturn it, and then worked at it really hard, serving in his name. That's not all that was involved, but that was a huge part of it. And it's hard to imagine it being, without that happening, 
It's hard to imagine we'd have the events that we had this week. But you can see this all over the world. In the 19th century, people who said that Jesus was the king went to Africa. And they had a life expectancy of about two years. So they would bring all their stuff in a coffin because they recognized that they would probably die of the, because of many diseases that their body wasn't prepared to deal with. But they wanted to share the gospel. And today, Africa is a, is a continent that is filled with Christians everywhere claiming the name of Christ and singing his praises in this very day. We see it on a smaller level, too. This past week, I went over to the, our, our denomination's general assembly, which is a, like a meeting of our denomination. And there was, there, there, I went to a gathering on Wednesday night that was kind of geared towards encouraging people. And they had a, had a man there speak whose name was S.J. Lim. He's a second-generation Korean-American and a Presbyterian pastor. He is the area coordinator for our college ministries in the Northeast. And I, it's particularly struck me because just knowing in uh, being in Tennessee, the Northeast is probably one of those areas that people kind of write off as a place. That, that's just a God-forsaken place, right? You've got to come to the, the South where religion is real, right? So, uh, and there's a difference, right? There is. So, but God is working there. And he told all kinds of stories at Harvard of people, of our college ministry and people being converted, coming to Christ semester after semester. He talked about a Bible study that's taking place on the west side in New York City. And it's like there's so many people there studying the Bible that they can't find enough space because it's hard to find space in that, in that area. The University of Queens, there's a second generation uh, Muslim American who's now come and coming to our college ministry to hear about the gospel. And then he keeps bringing people because he's so intrigued by what is going on there. That's the sort of thing that's happening. It's not the sort of things you'll see in the headlines. And my friends, we're all too governed by what we see in the headlines and by what pops up on Facebook or Instagram or whatever thing we do. And, and we're governed by that when we're not seeing the good things that the Lord is doing all over the world because Jesus is reigning. And as Christians, we need to fill our hearts and lives with those truths. And we need to let that cause us joy and it cause us to be active and cause us to be encouraged and not to write off places, but instead to go to them and tell them the good news of the life and hope that they can have in Jesus. That's where we should be looking. That's what this passage is telling us about. <clears throat> but it also has a message for, for you specifically as an individual. And that's what I want to talk about next. The identity of the sons of David. So what he says about the sons, is that, or this passage refers <clears throat> to what he calls David's line. And David's line, like a line of kings. But it can also, the word is very broad. It can refer to his seed, his general descendants, those who come from him, or his sons, or, or any variety of things along those lines. And I think it's better to use it more broadly. And I'll explain in a minute. So who are these sons that this passage is talking about? Who is this line or who is the seed of David? Well, remember that when the, when the Bible speaks of this future king, it calls us to say that we should put our trust in this king. It says in Psalm 2.12, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That is who say, I want this king to be my king, to be my leader. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. 
And so the question that one question we should consider from this is, have we done that? Have we said, I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be the king of my life. I want him to change me and make me new and bring me forgiveness and life and new hope and lead me through this life and be with me and help me and guide me and ultimately bring me to eternal glory. That's what he says. God is saying to each one of you today that I invite you to enter into that relationship and say, Jesus is my king and my savior. And that offer is there today. If you have any questions about that, if you are thinking about that, you're not sure about that, you should come talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you about it and, and hear what thought your thoughts are on it and share mine as well. Now, the, this, this trusting in Jesus is called the, the covenant with David or the God's covenant with David. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, we have a beautiful call for anyone, wherever they've been, whatever their background is, however, whatever they have, however many times they've failed, however much wrong they've done, however, whatever they've achieved in this life, whoever they are, that they come and without any of that being weighed in the balance, come freely back to God to enjoy a relationship, a love with him, and to be forgiven of all their sins. That's Isaiah 55. It's a really great passage. I definitely recommend it to you. But this, what it, listen to what it says. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. God's saying, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. A covenant that will last forever. A relationship that won't be broken. And then he calls it the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David. Because it's the same covenant that God made with David. He invites anyone to be part of and to be a part in Christ. You get the blessings that Christ gets. You get to have an everlasting covenant just like Christ has. Everyone who comes to grace, to God for grace, for forgiveness, for pardon, for change, enters into a covenant with God, and that covenant is identified as consisting in the promised mercy to David, which the Apostle Paul refers to Christ in his resurrection from the dead in Acts 13, 34. So Christ has a seed. He has a people. Are you one of his people? He, so we might say, well, we normally think of us being brothers of Christ because we're adopted children of God. But remember, Christ is called the everlasting father. And that's why he says in Isaiah 18, here am I and the children, the line, the descendants that you have given me. In Isaiah 53.10, Isaiah prophesies that when you, make, when you make his soul an offering for sin, like a sacrifice for sin, which happened on the cross, he shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days. So he'll have a seed. He'll have the, a seed, the same word used here. So if we belong to Christ, then we, be, then we are part of his seed and a part of his covenant, and that covenant will last forever. Now, the one thing that might make us wonder if that covenant will last forever is if, if the promise to, to us who are in Christ is as sure as it is to Christ is our own sin. Because if, if, if you're not a Christian today, if you've not been walking with the Lord, it may seem like I'll come to Christ and everything will change and everything will be good. And there's a lot of good and a lot of things change. But every person here can tell you who's been walking with Christ, that we also fail. And we've done wrong things. And sometimes really bad things. And so we might ask ourselves, does that mean that God is done with us? That he won't have anything to do with us? 
Not, would that mean, wouldn't that be the sort of thing that would end that covenant? God will say, that's it. They're out. I have nothing to do with them. Well, this passage tells us something otherwise. There's one, prom, one statement in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that is, not, that is not applied to David in this passage, but is applied to his sons. And that is the statement that his sons, if they sin, he will chastise them, but he will not destroy his covenant. He will not end the seed. Instead, he will just punish them or chastise them to bring them back. Listen. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. And remember, God made an everlasting covenant with us. So he's talking about David and us in him. Now, here's the point. That sometimes we go through really hard things. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't always know what they are as believers. But one of those reasons is that God is chastising us to keep us away from things that we've done wrong, that we have that errors that we've made, or, or wrong ways that we would go in our hearts and lives. And so that's why Solomon said in his wisdom, thinking about the hard things that the righteous go through, he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son, he delights in. And so when the hard things happen to believers, our tendency is easily to despise what the Lord is doing and to say, I want to have nothing to do with this. But what Solomon says is don't despise it. Recognize God is still working there and he's showing you his faithfulness to bring you back from where you have been before. And we all know that it's often a crisis or difficulty that is the thing that drives us back to God. When we rely on certain things like our health or people we love and we lose those things, that we begin to see that I can't rely on those things. I have to rely on the Lord. Remember the story of Fyodor Dostoevsky. I think a lot of you heard that. Um, he is, he's the author of some of the great classics of world literature. He was a noble who had all kinds of privilege in, in a country where there was millions who, who uh, had no privileges. And then he lost them all, trying to help those very people, got sent to the gulag in Siberia in a prison where he, where he was in terrible conditions, and everybody hated him because he was a noble and they were the oppressed serfs, and so they hated him. So he was in a terrible situation. But you know what he found there? He found in this place where it seems like there's no support, there's no help, there's no good things, that was like God emptied him of everything so that he would see just Christ, and that Christ is enough. And that's what he said, this great author. He said that he, had, he made his confession that there was nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more courageous, and more perfect than Christ himself. And that's what the Lord keeps bringing us back to. And if we go through hard times, that's, why, that's one of the big reasons a lot of times we're going through it, is to help us see that more clearly. Now, a lot of times the Lord will bring us through really tough times, but generally, his, while he treats his children, it's not, it doesn't last forever. And he restores and he brings back good things. And we may have missed something here, but God gives us 
fathers and brothers and houses and, and so on, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. But the Lord is there working. And that's what Lord, the Lord God keeps driving us to. That, that we have a covenant, a covenant of grace with the Lord. It's not like the covenant that we had with Adam where he sinned and he was liable to the punishment of God and separate from him. But it's a covenant where coming back to God, we are restored forever. So that we can be confident that whatever happens outside us or inside us, that the Lord is going to be faithful, that he's going to keep forgiving us, that he's going to keep restoring us, that he's going to keep challenging us, that he's going to keep building us up. He's going to fill us with good things more and more, even with the trials and struggles. And so we can be confident that, that for us who are in Christ, that we have a hope for good things and that we have, need to have no anxiety that those things that we have in Christ are going to be lost. Amen.